All right, Vrillcast 6. We're back in a different setting, this time in uh, Pennsylvania, not the classic New York City setting. In Pennsylvania, we've officially escaped the city, <laughs> and we've gotten into a town, quote-unquote. Temporarily. Can't wait to get out. Yeah. Fun fact, when I first got to college as a freshman, everyone was talking about what towns they're from, and I didn't know what a town was. What? Because in Staten Island, where we're from, no one, no one is like, I'm from this town or I'm from that town. They just ask what area you're from. Oh, you're talking about the Long Island people? Yeah. They're like, I'm from Sysat. Like, I didn't know what, <laughs> what they meant by town. Yeah, so that's what happens when you live I had in New no York. idea, because in New York City, you don't introduce yourself as what town you're from. You just say, like, like what, what area you're from. Yeah, what area? Bushwick. Yeah, but this broadcast is going to be very interesting. We're diving deep on the real diet of the Inuit. Everyone loves to reference the Inuit, especially in regards to the keto diet and the carnivore diet. So we're yeah. going to explore how they really lived and ate. We're going to talk about why fish are antifreeze, believe it or not. Yeah, an uh, antifreeze is basically to get ice off of your car. Whether or not this idea that the Inuit lived their entire lives in keto is true. And very, very interesting genetic mutations that were extremely prevalent amongst the Inuit. So we should start off by explaining for people that don't know what the Inuit are. Yeah, so the Inuit are, and this is what we'll get into, as I said, they're often used to point out like a healthy indigenous group, and they're an indigenous group of people um, in a certain area, uh, and people emphasize their supposed ketogenic diet, mostly comprised of what people consider fatty fish. So they point out this group, which is the Inuit, and they're like, these people, they ate carnivorous, they ate nothing but animals for at least 10 months out of the year, and mostly they ate fatty fish. And they're extremely healthy. They don't have any chronic disease. So they kind of use that to make a point that keto is a healthy way of living, lowers inflammation, lowers chronic disease, etc. So what are the Inuit? The Inuit are an indigenous group of people that settled in Greenland and northern Canada around 1100 AD. So that's about 1,000 years ago, mm -hmm. 900 years ago or so. And for those of you that don't know where Greenland is, the northeast part of Canada, the most northern eastern part of Canada, kind of connects to Greenland. So basically what he's trying to say is it's very cold. It's a super cold It's climate. literally the Arctic. Yeah. It's as far north as you can go on mm -hmm. planet Earth. It's northern Canada, northeast Canada specifically, and Greenland. Yeah. And that's where this indigenous group of people live. So, and the reason that they are kind of a good case study is because they were largely untouched due to the harshness and the severity of the climate um if you compare them to like american uh native americans they were basically killed contacted by the europeans uh in many different ways and so you know you can't study native americans in this modern age to see for example, Native Americans, since they had so much contact with the Europeans since the 1400s, 1500s, Native Americans still exist, but we can't study them and see, uh, oh, this is how they live, and they have low rates of chronic disease, etc., because they don't. But the Inuit, they were uncontacted until the mid-20th century. Now, there was contact here and there a few times within those thousand years, but it was never extended, and it was never prolonged. So they were largely uncontacted and they kept their traditional ways, traditional ways of eating and living until the mid 20th century when researchers got to them. Yeah, all of that to basically say that they basically lived the diet 
that's most ideal to humans, as you want to say, because they're very similar to like the Hadza and the Maasai, which are kind of these untouched groups. They're still touched now, but they kind of live exactly how humans were supposed to live. And they're down in Africa. And the Hadza are pretty much still hunter-gatherers. The Maasai are hunter-gatherers. And these Inuit people are pretty much hunter-gatherers just in the complete polar opposite climate, which is the Arctic. Yeah. So because these people have been untouched, because they've stuck to their traditional way of living, and because this way of living is largely ketogenic and carnivorous, and because of this, they've been free of the kind of chronic disease burden that we've seen in modern day, people like to reference them when they say, oh, a keto diet is so healthy. So we're going to dive into this and see whether they truly are ketogenic and whether it truly is as healthy as people like to say. Now, the data that we're going to use from the Inuit diet and lifestyle, it comes from the early to mid 20th century when researchers did finally get to them and document how they lived and their status of health. And we're going to go over the actual diet and genetics of the Inuit, why this diet is not suitable for almost anybody and why it can't be used as an argument for the keto, keto diet. Mm -hmm. So that's some foreshadowing. Uh, they're not actually fully keto, and not everything is so glamorous as it's made out to seem with the Inuit ketogenic diet and lifestyle. So a brief overview, the Inuit location, they settled in northern Canada and Greenland, so the Arctic, uh, literally the very top northernmost part of Canada. And since they're in the Arctic, the landscape was not suitable for any plants most of the year. At least eight to ten months of the year, there was zero plant life. Yeah, and their diet is very heavily intertwined with the environment that they're in. So unless this environment directly relates to the ancestry that you have, meaning that your ancestors also raised and raised their children and evolved within the same exact landscape of harsh winter as the Inuit, using the Inuit diet as a model diet will not work for you. Yeah, and this may be the case if you have ancestry in Northern Europe, like Scandinavia, but besides that, and maybe like northeast Russia, like Siberia, Yakutsk people. The Yakutsk people are probably the closest people, but they still yeah. have crops there, surprisingly. Yeah, so unless you're like northeast Russia area or kind of northern Europe, Scandinavian, and even, even northern European genetics, it's, the land was not as barren as it is in Greenland and North Canada. Yeah. So it's still a bit different. So now let's actually get into the Inuit diet. So... For most of the year, the Inuit truly were on a carnivorous diet and were in a, on a ketogenic diet. Now, this does not mean they were in a ketogenic state, which we're going to get into. And fish was the most abundant part of the diet. The fish they would eat would be very local to that, the region that they were in. And since they weren't contacted by people until the early 20th century, the fish in the area were swimming in very unpolluted waters. Like we know now, a lot of the water on planet Earth is polluted by big pharma, waste, and plastic pretty much so that leads to the fish also being classified as toxic they were fishing and getting their fish from unpolluted waters and another nuance with the fish is that since the waters were insanely cold up there it's the freezing arctic the fish were very high in PUFA they needed that polyunsaturated fatty acids so that they could withstand the cold temperature of the water so they were eating PUFAs and they were but they were also getting it from the fish that was in very unpolluted water yeah I see you touched on this right now but we're going to get into the whole polyunsaturated fatty acid content of the fish later later in the podcast and yeah for all intents and purposes the entirety of the world's oceans freshwater sources whatever are fully polluted at this point for yeah. you to find some seafood that's not been polluted you have to go seriously out of your way and so it might not even be worth your time we're going to touch on that later in the podcast as well now besides the fish they ate 
the land game they ate, and it was all wild game. The, they didn't eat any farmed animals. They didn't farm animals, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, they uh, so the land game they ate included birds and their eggs and caribou, which is a deer-like thing from what I understand. Yeah, it's kind of like a fatter deer from what I, uh, from what I remember looking at. Yeah, yeah, it's like a deer-like thing pretty much. And which without any carbs, this these land game is way too lean to survive off of. Any wild animals in general are extremely lean. And especially like birds and caribou, it's almost no fat. Now they are still getting some fat. Because they're eating the entire animal, nose to tail. Yeah, they're so, harvesting the fat of it, they're keeping it left over, like lard, tallow. Yeah, even like the internal organ fat, the Inuit would be eating. Now, due to where they lived and their inherently active lifestyle, they require over 3,000 calories a day, even the women, yeah, due now to, to the cold. To go just a little bit off topic, the reason they required 3,000 calories a day is because when you live in colder climates, your body actually requires more energy from you to keep your core body temperature at that metabolically healthy baseline of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. In the same fashion that drinking cold water actually burns more calories than drinking room temperature water because your internal core body temperature has to restabilize, which requires energy, being in a colder climate actually requires more food and more fattier food. This is seen like in a lot of regions of the world, whereas like imagine yourself in a warmer weather, tropical climate, you actually gravitate towards eating more leaner cuts of meat and more tropical food. Like if you go to like Portugal or Costa Rica, you actually tend to find yourself eating more fish and more like mangoes, bananas, things like that. And then when you go to, when you gravitate towards regions that are colder, like think Scandinavia, like Wyoming, you actually want to eat fattier cuts of meat and more starches, hearty fats, stews, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And so to that point, the bolus of the calories of the Inuits came from extremely high fat foods like polar bears. They literally ate polar bears. Yeah. Walrus, which are fat if you just look up a picture of them. Seals, which are fat. And whales, which have blubber. Yeah, straight blubber. So they literally ate polar bears, walrus, seals, and whales. Now, here's a key point about their ketogenic diet, quote unquote. They truly ate nose to tail. And when I say nose to tail, I mean more nose to tail than you can possibly imagine. They ate fish, li fish livers, they ate whale skin, thymus, pancreas, caribou livers, stomachs and tripes, including the contents inside the stomach of the caribou, which was actually considered a delicacy because the caribou's foraged plant matter, and that was like the only plant matter that they could get. It's like eating a black bear that was eating blueberries. You literally ate the plant matter from inside the caribou stomach. They ate the eyeballs of the animals. And this is a guess of my own. This is not from any research I found. But it's possible they even ate the contents inside of the intestines, which is shit, essentially. That's a guess. That's not based on fact. Yeah, and from the fact that they were eating nose to tail, they got a lot of unique nutrients that people in the, Western, in the West usually don't get. Like just to name one food, trachea, it's super rich in minerals like glucosamine and chondroitin which are basically two, two nutrients that people believe cannot be obtained by food. Like if you search up uh, new foods rich in glucosamine, it'll basically say that no foods are rich in glucosamine and it has to be supplemented. So basically the West deviated so far away from that nose to tail eating, they think that some nutrients that could be obtained from true nose to tail eating, like the Inuit were doing, cannot be obtained unless supplemented. And the Inuit were getting all of these unique nutrients from eating truly nose to tail. Exactly. And that's what people miss when they talk about, I'm going to do a ketogenic diet. Yeah. Now, you also hit on the fact that they ate polar bears. Now, you might yeah. be thinking, like, the Inuits are humans, and polar bears are one of, the, like, the most apex predators on Earth. So, I was researching this, and I found this really interesting. 
The traditional Inuit polar bear hunt was basically this super dangerous affair. So an Inuit hunter would set off across the ice for several days, equipped with his dog team, a few supplies, and a harpoon. And once they found their polar bear, the hunter set a plan with his dogs to approach it. And when they were close enough, the dogs were released to corner the bear. And then the hunter inched close to the teeth and the claws of the polar bear to deliver the harpoon blow. And then it would be a fight to the death. If the hunter survived, he paid respect of the spirit of the polar bear by hanging its skin in an honored place in his home, which a lot of people do now with like bear skins or by taxidermying or stuff like that. And the Inuit shared a deeply spiritual connection to the animals that they relied on for substance, and especially for polar bears. And they showed this deep spiritual connection by eating every single part of the animal. They honored it. And due to the sheer nature of the intensity and the risk of the hunt for the polar bear, every single part was eaten. It's a huge aspect that was lost in the modern day. We've deviated so far away from hunting for our own food that when we eat meat, we don't appreciate it. We don't eat all the parts of the animal because we didn't risk our lives to eat that animal. We didn't raise that animal. We didn't go through harsh conditions to eat that animal. But like people like the Inuit, they pretty much go through a life or death situation to get something like the polar bear. They're going to honor it by eating every single part of the animal. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point as well. And that's just another reason why they ate so nose to tail. Now, we already foreshadowed a bit of this in, in what we just talked about, but we're going to discuss now why the diet of the Inuit cannot be used as an argument in favor of the keto diet. Now, all the wild game and animals they hunted were eaten fresh. So what does this mean? This means that their muscles were filled with glycogen. And what's glycogen? Glycogen is carbohydrates. So since they ate these animals as soon as they were killed, they were literally eating the carbs out of their muscles. Now, the longer the meat is frozen after it's killed, which nowadays, I mean, even if you're sourcing your meat as well as possible from a farm, it's at least been months, possibly years, if you're just buying grocery store frozen beef, that the more glycogen, um, that all the glycogen is depleted from its muscles. The longer the meat is frozen, the more glycogen depletes. The longer the meat's frozen, also the more histamines it has. Like if you ever ate a dried steak or something like that, like I personally got a clogged nose or some kind of allergy reaction. It's because of the high histamine amount inside of that meat because it was dry aged. And the same histamine increases the longer meat is frozen, which is why when you get like actual fresh meat, like freshly slaughtered meat, it's considered low histamine. Yeah. So since they were obviously eating all their wild game, as soon as they killed it, they were pretty much eating the glycogen out of its muscles and getting carbs from that. So that on its own, could have been enough to keep them out of ketosis. Like that just on its own is enough carbs to kick, kick anyone out of ketosis. Um, another reason that while they may have been in ketosis, which they weren't, and I'll hit exactly on why later, and it's, it's not the glycogen out of the muscle meats that they were eating. Um, their keto diet, by the beauty of nature alone, contained all the vitamins and minerals they needed to survive, which is nearly impossible to replicate on a modern day keto diet. For example, they got enough vitamin C from all the liver they ate, whether it was the fish liver, the caribou livers, like they, I mean, they ate the liver of every animal that they consumed. So they got enough vitamin C from that. Uh, they got enough vitamin D requirements from wild fish, as well as their active lifestyle, leading them to be outside. Yeah, and really quick, uh, to go back real quick, the reason why they got enough vitamin C, like if you were to search out vitamin C in liver and then they recommend they do allowance of vitamin C, you would, you would see that they don't correlate. Uh, you can't get all of it from liver. But actually, vitamin C 
competes with glucose and carbohydrates for absorption. So vitamin C and glucose have very similar chemical structures and use the same receptors to enter the cells. So carbohydrates actually impair the absorption of vitamin C. Basically, this means that if you have no carbs or glucose in your diet, the vitamin C actually gets absorbed into the body a lot more, meaning you need less vitamin C to hit your RDA of vitamin C, which is how the Inuit actually got enough vitamin C in their diet just by eating liver alone. Yeah, since they were basically low carb. Um, and yeah, they got their vitamin D requirements from wild fish as well as just being outdoors all the time. And of course, for at least two months out of the year, they were just obviously out of ketosis because they were able to forage tubers and other plants. And they were really happy to do so. These tubers were actually considered a delicacy because they were so rare. And as you can see, there are these small factors like the glycogen from the muscle meats, the tubers for at least two months out of the year, that the Inuits were never in a prolonged state of ketosis. They never spent more than 10 months in ketosis at the absolute longest, if they even were in ketosis, which they weren't, due to some genetic mutations that we're going to discuss. And they ate a vast variety of foods, especially animal foods, like a level of variety that we can't possibly imagine today, which kept them at a moderate level of health. Now, people would like to think that, oh, they were an indigenous group, they were on a carnivorous type diet, they were on a ketogenic diet, they were amazingly healthy, they didn't have a chronic disease burden. Now, although they didn't have a chronic disease burden, they weren't as healthy as you may imagine. They suffered atherosclerosis throughout their population pretty badly and pretty frequent bone loss due to a lack of calcium in the diet. This group did not consume any dairy. And although they did get vitamin D from fish, as I said, wild fish and an active outdoor lifestyle, they at times didn't get enough of it. And that also contributed to the bone loss. Now. Even if the Inuit did spend a prolonged period of time in ketosis, which might have been 10 months, uh, they were still eating the absolute highest quality of foods that were freshly hunted in nature, absolutely unpolluted by anything. Whereas a modern day keto dieter would be eating some level of processing, no matter how clean their diet is. And if they're not paying any special attention to sourcing, their diet would not be clean at all. Now, if you're trying to pay your kind of best attention to how you source your food, you source locally, you source seasonally, you're still consuming microplastics, you're still uh, consuming maybe foods that the animal ate that were polluted, soil that was polluted, grass that was polluted, etc. Obviously, there's the air pollution that the animal breathes in. These very small things that you just can't possibly control that the Inuit didn't have to deal with. Yeah, and like we hit on before, the Inuit pretty much ate as no tail as it gets. And this is no offense to any keto dieters, but if you look at like the most perfect keto dieter, he's like they're only eating whole foods. It's primarily muscle meat, eggs, some kind of fat like butter or tallow, and then maybe liver and heart as their organs. And that's like the best it gets. And that's just only two organs, whereas every, every part of the animal has some kind of unique nutrient and they're missing out on all those unique parts. But that's only the ideal keto dieter. A large error of the modern keto sphere is, that, is the fact that things can be labeled keto if they're low carb. And the term keto, basically, it's kind of like this brainwash into letting companies label foods that aren't even healthy for you, keto. Yeah. Like things like Power Puck, Smart Sweets, things like that that are low carb, but they contain unnatural ingredient labels that are filled with artificial sweeteners like aspartame, sucralose, ACE, tay, emulsifier, gums, colorings. Ultimately, keto dieters usually aim to get like 70% of their daily calories from fat. But even if that's animal nutrition, a lot of it could come from modern day pork 
or chicken or anything that's farmed conventionally and from high omega-6 feed like corn and soy, that will pretty much raise systematic inflammation in their body. It'll add unnecessary polyunsaturated fatty acids to their body, and it'll ultimately lead to disease down the road. Yeah, and I was talking about like the cleanest possible keto diet, not even coming close to the Inuit. But realistically, the modern day keto diet is just an excuse to eat like American cheese yeah. and feedlot hamburgers under the guise of I'm not eating carbs, so it's healthy. Yeah. That's pretty much most of keto dieters nowadays. And yeah, that there's no no need to even compare that to the Inuit. So yeah, again, um they were literally eating a different part of the animal every day. Even if you're eating as nosotail as liver king, I'll give him some credit, he's eating like lamb brains and stuff. You'd never be able to get that animal nutrition diversity that my brother was talking about. Yeah, I've never seen him eat a trachea. I mean, I, <laughs> I've seen him eat some pretty interesting things. <laughs> now, this next part we're going to talk about is super interesting. And it's actually pretty insane. I, I'd encourage anyone to do their own research on this. The Inuits developed a population-wide genetic mutation that stopped them from ever going into ketosis. So across the entire Inuit population in Canada and in Greenland, there's a genetic mutation in their CPT1A gene that prevents them from going into ketosis. And we're going to talk about how it does this. But this genetic mutation is one of the strongest known selective sweeps in human history. And researchers believe that the variant was selected in response to the detrimental effects of chronic ketosis. So what does this mean? That means that the Inuits can eat a ketogenic diet. They can eat 70% fat, 30% protein. They could never eat a carb and they still wouldn't go into ketosis. They literally have a genetic mutation that prevents this from happening no matter what. Yeah, and this is the main driver of why they can survive in their own environment. And if you're based in a temperate or even if you're based in a cold environment, mimicking the actions of a group of people who thrive in the Arctic is not smart. It's pretty much like asking a freshwater fish to survive in salt water. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So literally every Inuit has this genetic mutation that prevents them from going into ketosis. And when they were pretty much tested in the mid 20th century by researchers using breath and urine tests for ketones, they revealed very low ketone bodies. Now, it gets even more interesting. This mutation is completely absent in all other global populations besides those that live in the Arctic. The only three known populations of people that have this genetic mutations are the Canadian Inuit, the Greenland Inuit, and Northeast Siberians, which are the Yakutsk people would be one example. Um, and so what this genetic mutation does specifically is it prevents the conversion of fatty acids into ketone bodies at the liver level. Now, researchers have several hypotheses as to why this genetic mutation appeared, but all of the hypotheses revolve around the idea that there are detrimental health impacts of long-term ketosis and long-term overproduction of ketone bodies. So this is super interesting. This is like a crazy example of natural selection pretty much, which basically means that due to one reason or another, atherosclerosis, bone loss, etc., the Inuit that didn't have this mutation, basically their family lineage died out. And only the Inuit that had this genetic mutation actually survived, which take this how you will, there's only theories that tell us why this genetic mutation developed. But essentially, one reason might be that long-term ketosis is not ideal has for very, humans. very detrimental effects yeah. and is not ideal for humans. And this is super interesting. If any of you guys did 23andMe or haven't done it, 
if you do 23andMe, they give you all the raw data, meaning every single gene, uh, you have a copy of a gene from your mom and from your dad, so you have two copies, and you could see all of your own genetic mutations just by accessing this raw data, and it's super interesting. Now, it takes like hours to figure out what they mean. Yeah, you the could, you could get in like this huge rabbit hole. Like I remember you and I spent countless hours trying to figure out what genetic, what, what gene was responsible for uh, androgen sensitivity, yeah. androgen receptor sensitivity, which if you guys don't know, is basically if you're a hyper responder to steroids or not, Yeah, which you literally don't know unless you try steroids, but yeah. it's maybe findable in a gene. It's super interesting because you could actually figure out if you're going to be a hyper responder without doing steroids. But first of all, there's a lot of genes responsible for that. Yeah. You'd have to actually be a researcher to be able to figure this stuff out. But yeah, if you do this test, you get all your raw data and you could see all your genes, which copies you have. So like one example of that would be, do you do well with carbs? There's a gene that encodes for amylase production in the body. And amylase is the enzyme that breaks down carbohydrates. So you could see which copies you have of this gene. Again, it's going to be very complicated to interpret the data. It's going to take a long amount of researching to like actually decode which genetic mutations you need to look at. But technically, if you did all that, you would be able to figure it out by doing one of these tests, if you process carbs well or not. But yeah, that's, that's the genetic mutation that the Inuit had. Now, the last topic of discussion in this podcast is kind of clickbaity. Why fish is antifreeze and why eating a lot of fish may not be a good idea. Now, obviously, fish is not actually antifreeze. But in a way, something is stopping these fish from freezing in very cold waters, and we're going to talk about that. Now, obviously, there are many reasons why certain species of fish would be able to survive freezing temperatures in the wintertime. The reasons being both environmental, such as a layer of ice forms on the top, but the water beneath it is actually slightly warmer. Mm -hmm. um, so environmental reasons like that, and also biological reasons to the fish itself. And one of those is a huge concentration of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the fish, which allows the fish to essentially slow its metabolism to a screeching halt come winter time. And this is kind of bro science, but in a way, the fact that the fish has this much polyunsaturated fatty acids and mm -hmm. the fact that it's able to go into this like quasi hibernation state quasi. In, in the winter, <laughs> it kind of acts as antifreeze for the fish itself. Now, yeah. When humans are in some ketogenic or quasi-ketogenic state, the metabolic signals sent by eating polyunsaturated fatty acids, this actually tells our body to go into our cells, to go into like a very diluted form of hibernation. Essentially slowing our metabolism is what it does. Yeah, so humans don't actually go into hibernation. So the human equivalent of going into hibernation is kind of the state of torpor, which is basically the slowing down of metabolism. Yeah. So when we eat things like polyunsaturated fatty acids, like in nature, animals that do hibernate, they go into the state of slowed metabolism down, but they actually hibernate because they don't need to use their metabolism. But then when humans eat and they don't hibernate, their metabolism just slows, but you still have to do day-to-day -day tasks. Now imagine doing your normal day-to-day -day tasks with a slowed metabolism. Who wants to eat less when they could be eating more? Yeah. So essentially these polyunsaturated fatty acids, they're sending signals to our cells to slow our metabolism down. Now, when you're a population in a colder climate, like the Inuit consuming a high amount of these fish with these high concentration of polyunsaturated fatty acids, sending these signals is actually a good thing because you conserve body heat and energy by slowing down your metabolism. That's essentially what the body is doing, is conserving its energy. 
by not expending more of it and speeding up its metabolism. And yeah, so humans in colder populations can actually benefit from this. And this is reflected within like physiognomy that we see on certain populations of people and their genetics. And this topic is honestly super interesting, can be a whole different podcast of its own. But in colder populations, colder climates, like look, for example, at the Scandinavian people of Northern Europe, you have stocky, wide bodies, wider waists and sh uh, shorter limbs in relation to torso ratio. Whereas if you look at uh, sub-Saharan Africans and populations like that who are for coming from hot climates, they have smaller skeletons, lighter skeletons, smaller waists and longer limbs and shorter torsos in proportion to those limbs. And the reason for this is because they need to dump heat. They're living in these hot climates. And the people living in these hot climates, like again, uh, sub-Saharan populations, they're more carb adapted. Their bodies are essentially better at utilizing carbohydrates than uh, people like Inuit are. Yeah, and you can see this in the modern day, like a lot of the top fastest people, uh, fastest marathon runners, like Kip Tom and Kipchoge, they're all from pretty much Kenya. And they have these lighter, smaller skeletons. They have these longer limbs, so it allows for longer strides. The lighter skeleton allows them to be a lower body weight, and then they run faster for longer. And then these stocky, wider bodies that you see in these colder climates is pretty much where all the world's strongest men come from. Yeah. Like after Bjornsson, uh, there's like those twins from, uh, from, uh, from Scotland. From yeah. Scotland, yeah, they're both like 6'8". And like yeah. 300 pounds. It's really easy to see the genetic differences at the extremes. That's where it becomes the most obvious. But yeah, like hotter climates, lighter skeletons, smaller waist, longer limbs, dump heat, colder climates, stockier builds, wider waist, shorter limbs, conserve more heat. Um, and also hotter climates, you're more carb adapted, better utilizing carbs. Actually, I think Kipchoge was saying he eats a ridiculous amount of oatmeal every day. He eats oatmeal in the morning. Yeah. yeah, like that might not be the best for someone who doesn't process carbs as well, but clearly he comes from a climate that, that does. Um, and yeah, like maybe being in the slow metabolism state if you live in the Arctic, but in modern day, first of all, we have heaters, we have houses. It's not good to have a slow metabolism. Yeah, also modern humans have an omega-6 to an omega-3 ratio of 12 to 1. So consuming a high amount of PUFA, even if it's environmentally appropriate, like living in colder climates, it'd be a bad idea since we have no need for this hibernation or torpor state, especially the modern average American with such an offset omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, they're better off eating no PUFA, even if they're <laughs> in a colder environment. Yeah. I mean, that even goes for people like us who are acutely aware of it. We still spent like 20 years, 23 years. Yeah getting this, accumulating this awful ratio. Now we need to spend 20 more years offsetting it. So a perfect example of how eating this high amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids can slow your metabolism. Uh, an example coming from nature is animals who hibernate in the winter. And let's look at bears, because that's like the obvious example that comes to mind. They eat a lot of acorns before they go into hibernation. Bears are actually known to shake down oak trees so that all the acorns fall and then they eat all of those. And they're literally accumulating polyunsaturated fatty acids because acorns are a nut, basically. Mm -hmm. And by the time, and so this allows them to go into a hibernation, slow their metabolism. Um, and yeah, by the time their hibernation is done, these polyunsaturated fatty acids are, are all used up. And basically what the bear has left in their fat stores are mostly saturated fats. And when the body senses that, okay, it's time to start using the saturated fats, the metabolism speeds up. 
which literally shows you that the polyunsaturated fats slow the metabolism and saturated fats speed up the metabolism. You know, the same can be seen in squirrels and anteaters. And there's even a hypothesis going around now that monounsaturated fatty acids have the same exact mechanisms as polyunsaturated fatty acids, but that we actually hit on that at an earlier podcast. Yeah, go listen to the other podcast. <laughs> um, and yeah, moving away even from the polyunsaturated fatty acids, I kind of touched on this a little before, but most fish nowadays is too contaminated with heavy metals and pollution to consume. So it's honestly not even worth spending your time thinking about it. Your best bets if you really want to eat fish are wild-caught whitefish like cod, halibut, etc. because they don't even have fat. So like you can't eat polyunsaturated yeah, fat like if there is no fat. Yeah. yeah. And something small like wild-caught sardines because just due to absolute mass, they can't possibly accumulate a lot of pollution. Um, yeah. It's a theory that the higher, the bigger the animal, the more pollution it has because it eats smaller animals that keep accumulating pollution up and up the food chain. Yeah. Um, but again, just eating like white fish and sardines, it's a one-dimensional diet. You can eat them if you want, but to be honest, worrying about seafood nowadays, even if it's lean seafood like shrimp or whatever, it's just so polluted that, yeah, there's so much pollution dumped into the ocean. The worst of it all being pharmaceutical company waste. Like they dump a bunch of waste from these pharmaceutical companies into the ocean. They don't get flagged for it. And that basically polluted the fish into being a toxic food at this point. Like a few fish became hermaphrodites from what I'm aware of. And since <laughs> yeah. we know that the toxins are stored inside the fat of the fish, eating light, lean white fish, like my brother said, is the best way to mitigate this. That's not to say that the occasional well-sourced fatty, like wild-caught salmon is bad. You can have that like, like occasionally. Shellfish is also fine to eat. They're all relatively lean. And a lot of them are super nutrient dense and low toxic, like shrimp, oysters, mussels, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with how the Inuit truly ate nose to tail. Even if we're eating fish nowadays, we're not eating the fish organs. The fish is really just there to provide variety for the diet and protein. And like protein, yeah. There's nothing in fish that you can't get from either the sun, fruit, meat, or dairy. Caviar is one of the things that come from fish that is actually unique because it's pretty much a superfood. In my opinion, it tastes amazing. If you've ever had black caviar... Unless it's farmed caviar. Yeah. If you've ever had black caviar from sturgeon, it's like a delicacy. It tastes insanely good. And its nutrient nutritional profile rivals the nutrition profile of ruminant animal livers, like beef liver, bison liver. Like caviar is a, a true superfood, along with like oysters. Yeah, bro, I'm craving caviar. Let me go spend $250. Yeah, it's like $275 for like a, a tin of like three or four ounces. It's obscene. Yeah. And I guess my final point is like, if fish is actually super local to you, like my brother was saying, Portugal, it could be worth including more of the lean fish into your diet because then you are kind of following a local diet and circadian rhythm, etc. Otherwise, it's best to just kind of only eat the fish that you like for variety purposes and just keep it to like a once a week thing with some wild caught whitefish or sardines. Yeah, so that pretty much wraps up all the points we had today. So we hit on the real diet of the Inuit, pretty much spoke about why they're not in keto, their actual diet, how they live, their genetic mutations, the nuances in PUFA, why they're antifreeze. And basically the keto lie. Why, why fish are anti-freeze, not the Inuit. Yeah. 